this morning. Glad that you could come out and be with us, especially if you're visiting with us. And that, uh, if you're visiting with us, we want you to be sure and pick up a mug out in the front. We have some uh, material in that that kind of tells you who we are and what we're trying to accomplish here. And we want each of our families to take one mug for the family. And those have been provided for us, and we're thankful for that. And so the church is offering that to uh, the, the, the members here. But remember, one mug per family, so we can uh, not take them all, because ultimately we want those for our visitors. So be sure if you're visiting with us today to grab a mug, and if you're uh, uh, with us today as a member, make sure you grab one for your family. Jesus, in His statement recorded for us in John 13, was talking about love. Love is kind of a complicated emotion. Have, uh, there are a lot of things that are uh, attached to the sentiment of love, and there are different degrees or variations of love. We have love one for another in a brotherly sense. We have love between husband and wife. We have uh, the love that you might have for a child or uh, another family member. And then you have agape love. And this is the form of love of which, of course, Christ was talking here. And He told His disciples, He said, A new commandment I'll give to, give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. Now, a commandment is something that is a prescribed rule in accordance with which a thing is done. So, in other words, it's a standard by which we go. If we're to accomplish a certain thing, a rule tells us how to accomplish that. That's what a commandment is. And of course, Christ has delivered to us all sorts of commandments throughout the gospel. But how exactly was this particular commandment new? Because love wasn't something that was foreign to God's people at any time. But it was new in that it was enjoined to something else that was required. This particular type of love was different in different aspects. Now the commandment to love was an edict in the law of Moses, Leviticus 19.18. But it was discharged and it was realized through the very narrow limits of the Jewish nation. The commandment Jesus discharged was new according to its breadth, according to its width, and according to its scope. So that's how it was made new. It wasn't new in that it had never been heard of before. It was simply new in the way that it was to proceed and with which all was involved. Jesus commanded us to love one another as He loved us. That was, in essence, the new commandment. How we were to love. That that means we love each other because He loved us. And to that extent possible, we're to love just like He loved. Now that's going to be a little bit difficult. We're not going to be able to completely uh, encompass that type of love, but we have to put every bit of our effort into Accomplishing that, the motive behind love, again, was the new thing. We love the way Christ loved. That's what caused it to be new. 
Christ with immeasurable, with limitless, with every other kind of describing word to talk about how He loved us had never been done that way before. And because of His great love for us, we're to love as close as we can to exactly the way in which He loves. So here's what He's saying. He's saying, you who are my disciples, love each other. He is saying, you who believe in me, love each other. You who are my followers, love each other. You who are members of my church, love each other. And when you do that, the Lord will know with a surety, you belong to me. That's the element in which people perceive a Christian, isn't it? They'll know that that we belong to Him, that we are His. The command to love one another is new because of the kind of love that it is. The world had never seen love like Jesus loved. It was brand new. No one in the history of, of humanity had ever come to earth to give Himself for all people. To have all people given the opportunity to have a covenant relationship with God. It is not a selfish love that says, I will love you if you give me this. That's the world's definition of love. I'll love you if you love me. Right? Jesus talked about that. Even the publican can do that. Right? They'll love those who love them. But we have to love those who do not love us. The love of which Jesus spoke, this is our first point. We're going to talk about the new commandment. The love of which Jesus spoke is a sacrificing love. It's a sacrificing love. A sacrificing love must first have its roots in the family. That's where we learn of that kind of love. The family is the first place where anyone will encounter that kind of love that Jesus had for the world within the family. If one does not have that kind of love for their own family members, how in the world are we going to have that kind of a love for someone who's not a part of our family? It's not possible, is it? We're not going to love the world over our families. In his letter to the Romans, Paul pointed to a whole laundry list of sins with which Rome, or those in Rome, had uh, committed themselves to. He He condemned those without understanding. He condemned covenant breakers. He condemned those without natural affection. He condemned the implacable and the unmerciful, Romans 1 verse 31. Now what I want us to notice is those without natural affection would include any person who does not have that natural love that exists between family members. That's without natural affection. Naturally, we're going to love our families, right? Naturally, we're going to love our spouses. We're going to love our children. We're going to uh, honor them above anyone else in this world physically. That's natural affection. Now we're to love no one more than we love God. But that's what natural affection is. Notice what Paul commanded as he was describing and using illustration for us to understand this kind of sacrificial love. Ephesians 5 verse 25, he said, Husbands, love your wives even as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for it. 
See, the Master sees that same potential in each of us. And we have that same potential, don't we? This is the illustration used to describe that. Christians are the embodiment of the mind of Jesus. Notice what Paul said, 1 Corinthians 2.16. He said, For who hath known the mind of the Lord, that he may instruct him? But we have the mind of Christ. Isn't that comforting? Isn't it comforting to know that God has not left us ignorant in trying to determine and to fulfill His commandments? He hasn't given us a commandment and then said, well, good luck in trying to determine how to fulfill it. No, He gave us the commandment and then He gave us how to do it. Therefore, we have the mind of Christ according to Paul. Now listen to his admonishment. Philippians 4 verse 8. Finally, brethren, whatsoever things are true, whatsoever things are honest, whatsoever things are just, whatsoever things are pure, whatsoever things are lovely, whatsoever things are of good report, if, they, if there be any virtue and if there be any praise, think on these things. That's the mind of Christ. That's the mind of Christ. If we know the mind of Christ, we'll be able to determine what He expects from us because He's left those commandments. He's not going to tell us to do something that we cannot determine how to carry it out. Someone says, well, shouldn't family love come easy if we're talking about those with natural affection and how husband ought to love his wife and we see how naturally Christ loves the creation that He brought into existence? And someone says, well, shouldn't that come naturally? Well, it ought to come naturally. That's why the family is the training ground, right? We see it within the family and then we learn from that how to operate in the, in the world. We learn to have respect for our mothers and our fathers and And then as we grow and mature and we begin to learn what God expects, we can translate that same love, that natural affection, toward God. Why do we love God? John said, because He first loved us. See, that ought to be a natural affection that we have toward God, right? So when we look at this idea of not having natural affection, it goes beyond the family. We ought to have a natural affection toward the one who created us. That's the illustration of the family, right? But God created all things. So we ought to have this natural affection. But something happens. There's a problem that presents itself as we we grow into adulthood and we're learning what this natural affection within the family is first and then we begin to translate that to God. When that doesn't happen, when we do not continue to grow and to mature, a problem arises when we can't move into greater love. Paul warned this, Romans 5, beginning with verse 7. He warned, saying, For scarcely for a righteous man will one die. Okay. It's not impossible to understand that a person would give his life for a good person. That happens. We have a long history of that happening in our military, don't we? We have a long history of people giving themselves... For someone else. Yet, peradventure, for a good man, some would even dare to die. But God commendeth His love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So when we do not move on to greater love in our training in the family, how will we ever be able to love like Christ? Christ loved 
the world. He gave himself for the world in that while we were yet sinners, we were not behaving properly. We didn't demonstrate love toward him. He still gave his life for us. Scarcely will you find someone giving his life for a righteous person. Peradventure, or sometimes you'll find someone who will give his life for a good person. But while we were yet sinners, while we were, were not in covenant relationships with God, Christ died for the world so that we could have that. When our love matures, it will grow. It will move on to greater love. It will become a sacrificing love, and that love is learned in the family. And when we live faithful lives, the world will see it. It's common, isn't it? For Christians to put others' needs before their own. Isn't that common? We see it throughout the history of the early church. We see it at the founding of the church, Acts chapter 2. People brought things together and had things in common to help those who had traveled long distances to observe the Pentecost and they stayed longer than they had anticipated because the church was established in Acts chapter 2. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved, Acts 2.47. And so they stayed. And they didn't have a means by which to support themselves. Now, this isn't promoting communism or socialism and people not being able to have property or anything like that. It is an example of a Christian, brand new Christians, putting the needs of others before themselves. But that's a part of Christianity, right? That's not uncommon. And so we understand that that happens when we demonstrate love. Now, there's a story told about a Christian doctor who went to China many years ago. He built a hospital to care for the sick, and he used that opportunity to teach the gospel. But one day the army marched into town. They burned the hospital. They uh, destroyed all the great works that he'd been doing after, uh, doing all those years, and and that he had devoted to the people of that property. But even though he was treated in that way, do you know what this Christian doctor did? He, he followed the army and he treated their wounded. He treated their sick. He did things to them with the use of his expertise that brought alleviation of pain and sorrow and discomfort. Well, that came to the attention of the army's leader. And so he asked his wife, he said, Why does that doctor do that? She said, there's only one answer. He's a Christian. And then upon hearing that, he humbly said to her, he said, if that's what it means to be a Christian, I want to be one. Now whether or not that is true, I don't know. Whether that is an actual story, but isn't the premise true? That's something that could have happened anyway, isn't it? Because that's what Christians do. By this shall all men know that you are my disciples, if you have love one to another, John 13, 35. John's, or Christ's new commandment was a commandment of a sacrificing love. But it was also a new commandment of a purifying love. That's our second point. Why, what gives something the uh, ability to purify? What gives something the 
the nature of a purifying quality. When we look at something and we say, well, that we can purify that, what does that mean? That means we can clean it up, right? We can clean it. It purifies because it is cleansing. Boy, we nailed it there, didn't we? That describes Christ's love for us. It's a cleansing love. Paul continued his explanation to those in Ephesus concerning why husbands are to love their wives in the same way that Christ loved the church. And speaking of Christ's love, he said this, Ephesians 5 beginning with verse 26, talking about Christ's love in comparison to the husband-wife relationship, that he might sanctify and cleanse it with the washing of water by the word, that he might present it to himself, a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that it should be holy and without blemish. His great love is the source of our cleansing. The Christian has had his or her sins cleansed based on the great love that Christ demonstrated to the world and our response to that, right? That's what makes the church that Christ built, the church for which He died without spot or blemish. Now, He explained to His disciples exactly how that happened. During that final Passover observance, as He instituted the Lord's Supper, He said this, And He took the cup and gave thanks and gave it to them, saying, Matthew 26, beginning with verse 27, Drink ye all of it, for this is my blood of the New Testament, which is shed for many for the remission of sin. His blood is the cleansing agent. I think we would all agree with that. Without Christ dying on the cross, without God having given His Son for the whole world, that whosoever should believe on Him, believeth, that's a continuous action, those who believe and Keep on believing. That's what the Greek verb indicates. Should not perish. So because of that cleansing blood, we can gain salvation. It's the cleansing agent. It removes the sin from our lives. It continues to remove the sin from our lives if we're faithful, 1 John 1, verse 7. If we have fellowship with Him, we walk in the light, and His blood continually cleanses us. Because you know the faithful Christian sins from time to time. He's not living in sin. But he sins from time to time. And when we recognize those sins and we repent of those sins, His blood will continually cleanse us. It's still the same cleansing agent, right? But for us to be cleansed, what do we have to do? We have to come into contact with that blood, right? It's the cleansing agent. If we have... Uh, a cleansing agent and we want to clean something in our homes or in our garages or whatever the case may be, do we keep it in the bottle? Well, no. We may have to dilute it with water or do something. We're going to have to pour it out and let it come into contact with the dirt or the stain or the grime or whatever the case may be, right? The dirt has to come in contact with the cleansing agent. The same is with Christ's blood. We have to come into contact with Christ's blood so our sins can be washed away. Now, again, we go back to this idea. Christ's 
presented a new commandment. But he didn't leave us ignorant in how to fulfill those commandments, right? Notice what Paul asked, Romans 6, beginning with verse 3. He said, Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death? There it is. What happened in Christ's death? He shed His blood for us, right? He said in Matthew 26, This is my blood which is shed for many for the remission of sins. So how do we come into contact with His? We can't come into His contact or into His blood, uh, contact His blood physically speaking. So it's a spiritual contact. And how do we do that? Know you not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into His death. Therefore we are buried with Him by baptism into death that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. So what does that do for us? Puts us into contact with His blood, brings us up to walk in a new life. We've been set free from sin. It's cleansed us. It's the cleansing agent, remember? And so it takes that away. Now, we must have a working faith involved in that, right? How how do we get to the point where we come into contact with His cleansing blood? It all begins with the working faith, right? Hebrews 11, 6. For without faith it is impossible to please Him. For he that cometh to God must believe that He is, and that He is a rewarder of them who diligently seek Him. That implies something we have to work at, right? We have to work at that. We have to have a working faith. We have to reject the worldliness that exists in our world. We have to do that. Acts 17.30 God commandeth all men everywhere to repent. So we have to repent. We have to turn toward God. We make that good confession in the presence of men. Now notice what Paul said. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. He says, with the, mouth, or with the heart, man believeth unto righteousness. And with the, with the mouth, confession is made unto salvation. Now we have to understand, that. Let's, let's not overlook the words, right? Let's not overlook the words. Because you believe, does that make you righteous? Well, many of the chief priests believed on Jesus but would not confess Him. Were they righteous? They couldn't have been righteous, right? They, they left out a commandment. With the heart man believes unto righteousness. I believe, therefore I can be righteous. I am close. With the mouth confession is made unto salvation. I'm not in salvation. He doesn't say into salvation. He says unto salvation. I'm unto falling off of the stage, right? Another step. I'm no longer on the stage. I'm unto that. I'm not in it, right? I'm unto it. And so there's got to be something else. So what is that? I had a working faith. I want to repent. I want to turn toward God. I'll make that good confession. I believe Jesus is the Son of God. So how do I come into into contact with that cleansing blood? Know you not. As many of you as have been baptized have been baptized into Jesus Christ. They were baptized into His death. Therefore, we're buried with Him by baptism into death. We're raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father walking a new life. That's the whole shooting match, isn't it? One's no more important than the other. They're all equally important. 
And so that's how we come into contact with that blood. That's why Peter said in 1 Peter 3 verse 21, he was talking about the example of the water lifting up the ark and saving Noah. He said there's... Uh, uh, from the destruction of the world. He said the like figure, a similar example, for the baptism doth also now save us, not to put away the filth of the flesh, but the answer of a pure conscience toward God. See, it has to be a sacrificing love, but we have to come into this love, and we have to have a purifying love, but we have to first be purified. We have to first be cleansed. And at that point, the, the new Christian will continue to grow. They'll continue to grow in knowledge and love of Christ as they faithfully live for Him. Without doubt, we're purified by the love of God because it's a cleansing love, but it's also a caring love. That's what makes it purifying, right? Paul charged the husband to love and to cherish his wife. Why? Why make that commandment, Paul? For no man ever yet hated his own flesh but nourisheth and cherisheth it even as the Lord the church. God has seen our needs in this life and He expects us to carry that on. And we see that example of James talking about that in James 2, uh, 2 verses 14 through 18. He says, look, you can say you have faith unless I see something behind that. It's just like telling someone that you see who's naked, say, boy, go, go be clothed and warm. Seeing someone who is who is hungry and starving, say, well, go be filled. Go have a good meal. Well, they're starving. They're in a position where they can't do that. So by me just simply saying, go, go have a good meal, that doesn't help them, does it? Notice what he said. What does it profit, my brethren? James 2, beginning with 14. Though a man say he has faith and has not works, can faith save him? If a brother or sister be naked and destitute of daily food, and one of them say unto uh, them depart in peace be ye warmed and filled notwithstanding you've given them not those things which are needful for the body what does it profit even so faith if it hath not works is dead being alone yea a man may say thou hast faith and I have works show me thy faith without thy works and I'll show thee my faith by my works that goes back to Hebrews eleven six. It's a working faith. We have to be diligent in seeking Him. But that doesn't mean that, you know, we're going to feed and clothe everyone who will not try to help themselves. We understand that. We have to be able to do that. He's using an example of someone who can't help themselves. Right? We can't help ourselves. We can't save ourselves. But God can save us, and He's not going to say, well, go be saved. No, He's going to tell us how to do that. He's going to tell us, how to do that. The new commandment was new because it was a sacrificing love. It was a purifying love. And finally, this is our last point, it was a unifying love. A unifying love. That's what His love did for us. If we embrace His love, we can all become members of His body. Now what is the body? Colossians 1.18, the body and the church are the same. Right? Ephesians chapter uh, 4, Paul talked about the one Father, the one Spirit, the one body, all of those things, the one baptism, there's one we That's what makes His love so great. It's a unifying love, right? Let's go back to uh, Ephesus again and continue to listen to Paul's sermon. Ephesians 5, verse 30, beginning. 
He says, For we are members of his body, of his flesh, and of his bones. For this cause shall a man leave his father and mother, and shall be joined unto his wife, and they too shall be one flesh. This is a great mystery, but I speak concerning Christ and the church. No longer would followers of God be separated by nationality, by tribe, or by any other thing. It's a unifying love, and we can all be a part of it. All of us can. Isaiah prophesied that, Isaiah chapter 2, beginning with verse 2 on through verse 4, how all nations would flow unto it and would teach His commandments and do what He's asked us to do. And we're going to learn and walk in His paths. That's what, that was the prophecy, right? That was the prophecy all pointing to Acts chapter 2. And on the day of Pentecost, Peter spoke those beautiful words. Aren't they beautiful? Aren't they wonderful? People in the audience listened to that sermon about how even some of them who were present had murdered the very Son of God. And then they said in verse 37 of Acts chapter 2, Men and brethren, what shall we do? See, isn't that so wonderful to know that God has not left us without the proper information? What shall I do? What shall we do? Well, about what? The very sins that have been laid at our feet. Verse 38, Then Peter said unto them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the remission of sin, and ye shall receive the gift of the Holy Ghost. For the promise is unto you and to your children and to all who are far off, even as many as the Lord our God shall call. Ending in verse 39. God calls each of us. But we have to understand how He does that. Second Thessalonians 2.14 He calls us through the gospel. We have to be aware of that, right? And of course, on that day, about 3,000 were added to the church. That's when the church was established. And it goes right back to the prophecy Jesus made, Matthew 16, 18. He said, I'll build my church. And boy, He sure did. His love is a unifying love. And for that was for what Christ prayed. A unifying love. When we become a part of the one body, we have to work to build it up, right? We all have to carry at our duties. If one person doesn't, the church can be destroyed. We have to come together and work and have a unifying body. We have to build it up. Lord Nelson of England was about to enter into an important battle. He heard that two of his officers who were going to lead men into that battle were, were arguing with each other and they were, uh, they were fussing and fighting and they were at odds. And so he brought those two men into his office and he said, give me your hands. And, he gave, and they reached the hands out. Both captains did. And he took them in his hands. He squeezed their hands. And he said, now remember, gentlemen, the enemy is out there. We'll be fighting with each other. The enemy is out there. Let's have a unifying body and let's build that body up, right? The love of God wants for His church. That kind of love has to be a tough love. It has to be an enduring love. It has to see beyond emotions and selfishness and, and things like that. It has to be the highest form of love, agape love. And that's what he expects. The psalmist said it best when he said, Behold, Psalm 133.1, How good and how pleasant it is for brethren to dwell together in unity. And that is wonderful. I think when Jesus said love one another, I think what he had in mind was a sacrificing love, a purifying love, and a unifying love. And the love of that nature will reflect Christ. It 
completes the law. It results in salvation. It is evidenced in Christianity. It is a demanded commandment. It is a response to God loving us. And it is available right now. If you've never obeyed the gospel of Jesus Christ, we've talked about how to do that. You have to have a working faith. Our faith has to come from the gospel, not from the words of people. And I say all the time, and I mean this, never take my word for it. If you can't find it in the Bible, ignore it. So then faith comes by hearing, and hearing by the word of God. Not what Rick Owen says. That faith has to be a working faith, Hebrews eleven six. That has to be followed by a change of mind, which results in a change of action, repentance. Acts 3.19 That is followed by stating publicly I believe Jesus Christ is the Son of God. The Son of God. That, com- that confession unto salvation. And then I want to get into Christ. Why? Why would I need to be in Christ? Ephesians 3 verse 11 says, or Ephesians 1 3 says all spiritual blessings are in Christ. So I need to get into Him. And there are only two places that tell us how to do that. We talked about one, Romans 6, 3 and 4, Galatians 3, 26 and 27 is the other. For we're all the children of God. He was writing to Christians, Galatians 1, verse 1, the church in Galatia. He said, the church in Galatia and I, Paul, were all the children of God. For as many of us as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And then we follow that up. It doesn't stop there. Remember that working faith? He that uh, believeth and is baptized shall be saved. He that believeth and keeps on believing shall be saved. Mark 16, 16. That's how you get into Christ. Now, it's possible to leave Him. It's possible to step outside the light. Simon the sorcerer did that. Acts chapter 8. He had obeyed the gospel. He was a faithful Christian until he allowed his greed to resurface And he tried to buy the powers of God from the apostles. And they told him, repent of these things. And he did. They prayed for him. He asked God to forgive him, and God did forgive him. That's how we come back to God. And we see that in 1 John 1, verse 9. If you have need to answer this Lord's invitation, let that be known as we stand and as we sing.